Broadcasting live from the RNR studios in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's the premier destination for an inside look into the Las Vegas Raiders. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor. Presented by Tequila Embajador. I don't think people realize practicing at 7.30 a.m. is... I think unprecedented, at least in my career as a coach, and to have uh, everybody come out uh, with that type of concentration and energy and effort was impressive. Hot out there, you know, kicking off at 7.30. Guys got to get up at 5 a.m. every day. So I, these guys must like football. That's promising. Amen, John Gruden. I'm out there, too, at 7.30 in the morning. It's a tough wake-up call. I got to tell you that. Uh, but we do it because we love it. And uh, I got to say, it looks like the Raiders – do love it. Um, this is a different intensity level that I'm picking up on uh, with these Raiders. I think it built from the offseason program and OTAs. People can say what they want uh, about OTAs. J.C. Treader from uh, the Cleveland Browns, I spoke quite a bit during the offseason about how much I disagreed uh, with with J.C., who used uh, the offseason programs in his early in the early part of his career to build to where he is right now for him to retro look back and say, no, you don't need it. What are you talking about? You needed it to get where you got. Don't deny that for uh, a bunch of young players that are trying to get what you have. Uh, I think he kind of lost that or, or or misplaced it someplace. Uh, but the, the what I saw the Raiders building in OTAs, it's carried over uh, to training camp so far. Now it has to carry over uh, to pads tomorrow. And then obviously when uh, head out to California to practice against the Rams and go play the Rams in preseason and build off of that. Uh, but it's headed in the right direction. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say the Raiders are going to win 11, 12 games, but it looks better right now on the field than it has at any point in these last three years that I've been around the Raiders. That's all I can go on. We'll see if it translates uh, to the grass, but uh, I like what I'm seeing so far, especially of that 2019 uh, group that seems to be taking ownership uh, of this operation. It's kind of the natural um, you know, transition of power, and it's happened organically, and I think that they bided their time. They were respectful. Um, they f- are finding their voices, and they are expressing themselves, and that's what you want to see, uh, especially from a bunch of guys that come from Clemson and Alabama and Ohio State and places like that where they win, and they know how to win, and they want to win, and they're sick and tired of losing. Uh, let's see if they can pick up some more wins in 2021 for the Raiders. We're going to go out to the Raider Nation guest line and welcome in Sam Monson from Pro Football Focus. He's one of the best at what he does. Uh, I know it's a busy time for uh, for Mr. Monson uh, doing what he does for Pro Football Focus as he keeps an eye on 32 teams. I got enough to do just keeping an eye on one team for crying out loud. Sam looks at all 32. Sam, thank you for spending some time with us in the huddle. How are you doing, my man? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing good. Do, kind of fired up, you know. Tomorrow's pads. It's that that next step in 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 training camp. About an hour into practice, we'll be like, all right, can we start the games now? But you know, for now, I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, what it looks like when they get to pads uh, tomorrow. Sam, you do a lot about quarterbacks, um, and uh, you know, I've listened uh, to you to you talk about quarterbacks and what you've written about quarterbacks, uh, and it's always top notch stuff. I want to start with Derek Carr. He's obviously the quarterback of the Raiders uh, in some. Quarter- Quarters, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of Raider Nation that wants to move on from Derek uh, as quickly as possible. There are others that, you know, 
made it have a little bit different perspective. Hey, have the Raiders done right by Derek Carr? Um, and until they do, uh, you know, are we being too hasty in trying to find the next quarterback? Where do you fall, um, generally speaking, uh, on the Derek Carr side of things? It's a tricky one because um, I think generally the quarterback position has evolved a little bit in terms of how teams are approaching it and what you, you should be looking for. There was a period not that long ago where you just needed a viable quarterback because if you didn't have one of those guys, you couldn't win and, and everything was dead before it even started. Um, and getting a guy like Derek Carr or Kirk Cousins or you know any of these quarterbacks that's a capable starter was a big win because the, the specter of not having that guy and having to go through those years of quarterback purgatory where you just couldn't find any kind of viable starter was terrifying to teams. But now I think it's gotten easier to find those guys. And I think if you look at the last couple of off-seasons and just look at the quarterbacks that haven't been able to find starting jobs, forget the guys that have, look at the ones that are having to sort of take these backup roles and just stick on a roster, you can get viable quarterback play now um, pretty easily and without expending much money to do it. So now what you're shooting for is the jackpot. Now you're trying to find your version of Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers or you know whoever that superstar quarterback is, and you can afford to take some chances if you don't have that guy. Um, because I think it's gotten easier. It's not as scary not having that guy versus you know the just getting a, a kind of the next quarterback that's going to be the starter. So Derek Carr is in this tricky spot where he isn't in that category yet. He's not amongst the Patrick Mahomes, the Aaron Rodgers, those elite superstar quarterbacks, but he has gotten better. Um, and last year in particular, it was arguably his career year, certainly the best season we've seen from him since that 2016 year where he looked like he was going to be one of the, he looked like he was going to be one of the next young great quarterbacks. So I think the Raiders are in kind of a tough spot because they've now, you know, they've been putting weapons around him. They've been trying to build this offense and he's definitely gotten better. But what they need to sort of identify and ask themselves is, where is his ceiling? And is he ever going to you know, be in that elite echelon of the very top quarterbacks? And if not, what's the pathway for us to get one of those guys? Because I think that now is what everybody is trying to chase down. Is he better than Jared Goff? Yes. Is he better than Jimmy Garoppolo? Uh, yes, it's certainly because he's more dur- durable than Jimmy Garoppolo. Jimmy Garoppolo, even independent of how well he plays, is an injury nightmare at this point. Now, I couldn't have said that um, in regards to uh, Jared Goff, who I covered uh, when I was in Los Angeles, until I got a chance to see Derek Carr for a full season. And at the very least, last year, he was definitely better than the versions of Jared Goff that I, that, that, that I saw. Can I make the case that, hey, Jimmy Garoppolo and, um, and, and Jared Goff thanks to what their organizations did around them, were able to get to the Super Bowl. They were able to play sufficiently enough, in, especially in Jared's case uh, in 2018, to get his team to the Super Bowl. If Jared Goff is better than those two players, don't the Raiders maybe have the guy that they need to get to the Super Bowl? If they do yeah, right like, by him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's possible to get to a Super Bowl with a middling quarterback and with a guy who isn't in that elite echelon of the Patrick Mahomeses of the world. It's definitely doable. We've seen it happen plenty, and you can win a Super Bowl with those guys. I mean, I know he's a, an all-time great Hall of Famer, but when Peyton Manning won his second Super Bowl, Peyton Manning was not playing well. Peyton Manning was, at best, an average quarterback that season, 
And really, there was very little between Peyton Manning that year and when Brock Osweiler had to play that year. Like, Peyton Manning was done at that point, and he got dragged over the line by the best roster in the NFL with the Denver Broncos. So you can definitely get to a Super Bowl and you can win a Super Bowl, but the question is how hard is it and how much else around that guy needs to go well for you to win with him as the quarterback. Now, if you're the Raiders, and particularly now that you're going to be in a division facing Patrick Mahomes twice a season every year for the next decade, it's pretty hard. You know, you are going to need to assemble a genuinely fantastic roster around Derek Carr before he's the favorite over a guy like Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs in the playoffs or when you run up against the best teams in the NFL. So the question they have to ask themselves is, is it easier to find the next Patrick Mahomes or is it easier to assemble one of the best rosters in the league so that Derek Carr can be one of the favorites to win a championship? And I think that's you know, it's up for debate. I think that's you could go either way with that. You literally just took the question out of my out of because as you were talking, I was like, okay, the next, the obvious next question is, what is easier or harder, finding Patrick Mahomes or building a team around a pretty good quarterback that you know, if he if he's you know playing up to his level, can get you to it help get you to a Super Bowl. And I, I would imagine, Sam, that's the age-old question that every team, uh, you know, asks themselves. But and, and, and this is why it's so fascinating because, you know, you hit the nail on the head. The Raiders are in a tricky spot because on one hand, they're not in a situation where they don't have a quarterback. We've seen that far too often where right. it's just laughable. But but is the guy is 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 the second or third tier that he falls into you know, good enough, and and what do you have to do? How painstaking is it to build a team around him to get to the Super Bowl? I think at this point the Raiders would would definitely you know settle, not settle, but just get to the playoffs and see what happens, and and get this thing headed in the right direction. I certainly think he's capable of doing that. But above and beyond that, that becomes the age old question, Sam, and and we could spin our wheels uh, all, all all day long thinking about that. But it it certainly does make for a, a fascinating uh, question. I, here's what I wanted to ask you, though, as well. You know, we saw Joe Burrow came in and played pretty well, kind of in a, uh, you know, th- he needs some help. There's no question, especially on that offensive line uh, and elsewhere. But he played reasonably well. Justin Herbert played above reasonably well. He There were some times last year where he was just spectacular. Um, you know, some of these young quarterbacks that are coming in, especially last year, and and really opened some eyes. What kind of a adjustment do some of these guys have to make now going into, hey, there's actually going to be fans in Seattle. <laughs> there's going to be fans in New Orleans and Kansas City and all these other places that are bedlam and make life difficult for quarterbacks that those young guys didn't have to deal with last year. What kind of an adjustment do you expect or do you expect for guys like that? Yeah, I think it's definitely an added element. To be honest, I think it will affect people like just uh, Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert less. You know, I think it's probably a good thing that they got a year under their belt and kind of got comfortable, and now you're going to be adding this extra sort of challenging element of um, Rockers fans in the stand, particularly in away games. But they've already gotten used to the NFL at this point. It's just uh, an extra challenge this year. I think if it's going to be a factor that affects anybody, it will affect the rookie quarterbacks for this season. You know, the guys that are going to be starting in year one who have to make the adjustment to the NFL at the same time as the raucous fans in the stand and whatever uh, effect home field advantage has in that scenario. But 
I think we've seen this trend for a while now that young quarterbacks coming into the NFL today can adjust. It's it's not as difficult as it used to be to make that jump. Now, it's not everybody, and you're going to see some guys definitely that struggle, but you're not banking in this idea that every first- or second-year quarterback is going to take a couple of years before they play good football. You know, Peyton Manning's first year, he set the interception record for a rookie. His first year was kind of a nightmare, and, and then there was this understanding that you just needed to see enough and that eventually Peyton Manning would put it all together in years two, three, four when you were going to see the superstar, but that you don't have to uh, think that way anymore. You know, you can see rookies. Baker Mayfield set the rookie touchdown record, and then Justin Herbert broke that a couple of years later. Rookies are having this kind of immediate success pretty regularly. Who bears uh, the, the the bulk of that responsibility for that um you know, earlier success? Is it the players or is it the NFL saying, hey, look, you know, we're getting quarterbacks from a system in college uh, that, that that we need to start adapting ourselves to to make things a little bit easier for these, these guys uh, coming in. So did the did, did coaching make a little bit of an adjustment to, to do more of the things that they were seeing in college? Yeah, I think it did, but I'm not sure that that's the motivation. You know, I think ultimately that the NFL just started moving towards college spread offenses for years. Those were were kind of held up as this thing that was breaking the league and the the, the system was going to be so different that these guys were never going to be able to succeed in the NFL. It was going to be such a huge transition. But the NFL just started moving in that direction. They realized that a lot of these college um, uh, systems and schemes were applicable. They worked at the NFL level as well, and they were good. They were free yards. They were kind of cheat codes for an offense. So you start employing those as well, and all of a sudden, the NFL offenses start to look a lot like college offenses in a lot of different ways. So these guys that have grown up now playing the spread offenses in high school and in college, they come to the NFL, and nothing really changed. Obviously, there's some wrinkles for the pro game, but it's the same kinds of offense that they're used to, and the adjustment just isn't as big as it used to be when there was a giant gulf between the systems that these guys are running in college and what they were going to have to run these pro-style offenses at the next level. We're talking to Sam Monson from Pro Football Focus, and you can follow him at PFF underscore Sam. Okay, on the flip side, Sam, um, why so many failures as well? What is what's I mean? They're running the same offenses. A lot of these guys seem to have the same kind of skill set. I know there's a probably a whole bunch of dynamics that play into the failure end of it. But if if there's a way to kind of put one or two fingers on it, where would you say it? What, what, how would you explain that? I, I think there's always going to be failures, um, and at every position as well. One of the things is obviously you're still making a jump between college athletics and the professional ranks when suddenly you've got millions of dollars in your bank account you don't have somebody checking up on you every minute of the day you've got free time you've got guys that you know were working for a goal and that goal was to get paid and now that that's happened what are they working for i i think you're never quite going to be able to eliminate the the kind of mental aspect of all this but that's going to be an interesting element of now college athletes can get paid. You know, some of these guys are going to be millionaires. Well, I mean, serious millionaires before they get anywhere near the NFL. So that's going to add a whole different dynamic to trying to kind of sift through these guys and their motivations and all those kinds of things. 
Let's go to Miami and Tua. Uh, struggled at times last year. I was at Allegiant Stadium when he got pulled, um, and uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick came in and led the Dolphins to a miraculous win with 19 seconds left in the game to beat the uh, uh, Raiders, one of the more heartbreaking losses for the Raiders last year. Uh, but Tua's the guy. Uh, I'm hearing good things about him coming out of Dolphins camp, but uh, I haven't been able to see it with my own two eyes. Um, what kind of step forward do you think he's going to take, and is he? do you believe he's, gonna, he's the quarterback of the future for the Miami Dolphins? Well, I, I definitely ex- expect a step forward, um, and I've been talking about this for a while, but I think the jump from Alabama to the NFL might be one of the biggest adjustments that any quarterback has to make, not because the level of competition or anything like that, but because those guys are always open at Alabama. You know, Tua was throwing to four first-round wide receivers at one point. Um, those guys were wide open. The scheme at Alabama does a good job of scheming them open as well. Like they run a bunch of route concepts that you don't really see anywhere else because most people don't have the time to make that happen. So every time Tua dropped back and looked up, there's a guy without any defender within five yards of him. It's the easiest read in college football. Put the ball in the air. Jerry Judy's got a touchdown. Easy. Now in the NFL, particularly Miami last year, where they didn't really have these quick speed receivers. He's looking up, and instead of a guy with nobody near him, there's somebody with a cornerback in tight coverage the whole way. And Tua now needs to rewire his brain and figure out if that guy's open in the NFL or if that is covered. And and that's a difficult thing to do, to completely kind of rewire the way you read the game every time you drop back. So I think it's to be expected that it would take him a little bit longer than some of these other quarterbacks. And that's without even factoring in you know, no preseason and the bad injury that he was coming off and all those kinds of things. So I would expect a, a jump. That his biggest issue last year was just the reluctance to put the ball in the air deep and, and a complete lack of those big plays. And logically, it makes sense that those are the passes you're going to be, you know, reticent on putting in the air. Those ones where you're not 100% sure that guy's wide open yet, so you don't throw it. But if they're, you know, offseason and preseason this year is all about reconditioning that thought process and just saying, look, understanding when a guy is either NFL open or he's going to be open and you just need to put that ball in the air and have some faith. If Tua can get that, he's got the accuracy. You know, his arm isn't great, but I think it's good enough to be good. He's got athleticism. He's got the tools to succeed. We just need to see him take that step. That used to be what we said about USC quarterbacks. It's kind of as a, as a LA guy, it's kind of sad for me to say that they're not even there anymore. Where you know, with the with the Matt Leinerts and uh, all the other great quarter, great college quarterbacks that they had, that were more you know, the, the, the benefit of the great talent that Pete Carroll had ar- around them. And they got to the NFL, it was a different game, and they weren't able to make that uh, transition. But I agree with you on the on the Alabama point of it. Just there's just an overwhelming amount of talent that they're playing with and, and great coaching uh, as well. So interested to see what Tua uh, has uh, to offer this year. Last question for you, Sam. Uh, there's another slew of quarterbacks uh, that have entered the NFL this year. Um, who are you most fascinated to uh, to watch play this year, and who do you think, when the, all the dust settles, um, at, at least as a rookie, is going to be in the best position um, to, to you know have a, have a pretty decent season? I'm actually fascinated by all five of those same here, guys. same here. I, I liked all of them for different reasons, um, and actually, I did like all five of them. There was a lot of people that you know only liked three of the five or four of the five or whatever it is. I, I have I liked all five of them. I thought all five have a good shot to be good. I think it's going to be a while before we see Mac Jones, so I don't think he's going to be in that 
conversation. I think the 49ers are probably not going to start uh, Trey Lance early, though I'd love it if they did. And I don't think there's necessarily a reason why they shouldn't. Um, Justin Fields, I think, will probably get on the field pretty quickly because I just don't think Andy Dalton is going to give you a reason not to. And that coaching staff is going to be under some pressure to put him in pretty quickly. And then obviously you've got um, the number one, number two picks, I think, are going to be starting from day one. I think Trevor Lawrence probably is in the best situation to be good pretty quickly. I think that offense in Jacksonville could actually surprise people. They have a lot of talent at receiver if the offensive line can be passable. Um, I think the scheme will be good. And Lawrence, I think, will hit the ground running pretty well. So he's probably the, the favorite to be good like uh, right away. But I could easily see Chicago and Justin Fields you know, doing really well if he gets on the field pretty early. Well, I can't wait for your analysis. You're really good at what you do. Uh, I appreciate the hard work, and I appreciate you spending some time with us in the huddle. Thank you so much. Uh, keep doing your thing, Sam. Uh, be well, and we will talk to you down the road. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for the kind words. You got it. That's Sam Monson from uh, Pro Football Focus. You can follow him, and I always tell you guys, A, follow him at, uh, at PFF underscore Sam, but also pluck down the 35 bucks per month and get Pro Football Focus. It's worth the money. Trust me. There's tremendous analysis that you do. Uh, they dig really deep uh, at every position uh, and every unit uh, in uh, on the field. So it, it's worth it if you want to take a look at uh, the game um, from that perspective. And they do an excellent job. That was Sam Monson. We really thank him for spending some time with us in the huddle. You are in the huddle. This is Vinny Bonsignor, and this is brought to you by Tequila Embajador. You're listening to Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. Now, back to your host, Vinny Bonsignor. Yeah, you know, the best offensive line I've played on, they're just a bunch of hungry guys, you know, humble uh, warriors. You know, they just grind every day. They're just diligent about, you know, the small details of being an offensive lineman. You know, there's a lot that goes into it. Feet, hands, hat placement, pad level. Um, and I think that our group has components of that. I think we have a bunch of hardworking guys uh, Colton Miller uh, doesn't say much. He's a quiet guy, uh, but the guy works his ass off. He's he's in the weight room. He's getting stronger and better every year. He's out there in pass protection. Uh, I'm sure you guys were watching practice. He's out there locking people down. Uh, you got me. I'm just an old school grinder. I, I bring it every day. Uh, bring the energy. Keep the guys going. Keep them focused. Uh, Andre's a young guy, and he's an extremely intelligent guy. Incredibly hard worker. Great athlete. Uh, you got Denzel and Big John over at right guard. Both both guys have have seen some action. They're uh, they're capable of being starters, um, but again, at their core, they're they're hardworking guys. And then we got Leatherwood, and uh, he's a he's a very polished uh, rookie. You know, he came from the uh, University of Alabama with a lot of success, and uh, they did a good job with him down there. Another guy, he doesn't say very much, but he works hard. Uh, so that's it, man. We're just trying to get it all to come together up front. You know, we're working hard. Uh, coach Cable is a, an awesome coach. He's one of the best offensive line coaches I've played for. Uh, we really have a great relationship. Um, and that's it, man. We're just putting in the work every day, just getting better every single day. There's always something to work on, always something to get better at. And you can feel that hunger from this group. That's Richie Incognito, uh, the Raiders veteran offensive guard uh, going uh, in depth. Like it, Richie. Gosh, darn, man. Next stop, front office for Richie Incognito or maybe a coaching staff. We'll see. But uh, he was getting in-depth 
on uh, the Raiders' offensive line, a very young offensive line. And, you know, obviously there were changes that needed to be made. That's the nature of the NFL. Um, you've got to be adaptable. You have to, You have to constantly be thinking about development. I know we get caught up in the first-round picks, uh, and rightfully so. Um, you know, you got to hit on those without question. Uh, and those 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 first two picks or so that uh, that kind of drive a draft and drive the audience and get everybody all fired up. But um, it's those lower rounds and it's those development um, you know uh, projects that you bring in, like an Andre uh, uh, James who wasn't even drafted uh, out of UCLA. I mean, he was a dude that was making a position switch coming out of uh, UCLA. Um, and I've seen it so many times, especially on that offensive line, where you start looking at where guys were drafted, and you'd probably be surprised. Um, maybe because there's five on a team and eight or five uh, at a time, and eight uh, in a in a usually on on on, on the roster. Uh, so there's a lot of them, and so you can't always just rely on 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 the first round uh, to be able to uh, to get your guys. Maybe it's because guys play a little bit longer, so there's guys that you're bringing in uh, that sit and wait and develop for a couple of years. Uh, but but there's it just seems like if you look at the resumes of uh, offensive linemen, you're going to find a lot of dudes that were drafted well out of the first round. You just have to hit. Uh, on those guys, you have to be willing. This is the thing: you have to be willing to be okay with the fact that you may get a guy that's not going to be on the field for the first couple of years of his career. Period, and be okay with it, and shut out the noise of fans. Why did you waste a fourth round pick on, you know? Well, because nothing stops. The clock doesn't stop. Time moves on. See that guy that's starting for us right now, 31, 32 years old. Yeah. In a couple of years, we're going to have to replace him. Heck, it might be a guy that's 28 years old right now. We got to have a plan a to be able to have somebody that's good and decent and dependable behind that guy. But even more importantly than that, a procession plan so that when that guy might have to leave, because of money considerations and moving money around and, and evening things out in terms of the pay uh, for throughout your, your, your roster. If you have to make a hard decision to walk away from a talented football player, it helps when you have somebody right behind them that's on that development track that's going to be able to step right in, may not necessarily provide the exact level of play, but is on his way to either getting there or maybe even surpassing it. That's why a guy like Andre James is so fascinating. Is he Rodney Hudson? Well, it would be presumptuous to, to say that he is. We don't know. Haven't seen him enough to, to, you know, in real action to say that he has any sort in any world that we're talking about that Andre James can be as good as Rodney Hudson. Rodney Hudson's one of the best at what he does. But if he can, if 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 Andre James could be could be on uh, you know uh, Rodney Hudson could be better than Rodney Hudson could be a notch below Rodney Hudson but still be a good solid football player, then that development time that you put in was obviously well worth it, and it is an investment, and it does take time and. Um, it's not always an undrafted free agent. There could be a fourth-round pick, a fifth-round pick that's biding his time, putting the necessary work in in the lab day after day after day, 
end um you know with the idea of a future payoff and i know sometimes fans you know they want uh it's like a rush to get out there on the field just to um justify wherever the pick might have been but it doesn't always work like that and in fact you kind of want to be in a position where you don't have to just rush guys out there because that's your best option you want to get to a point where your best option is a starting player and then as this, as as the years move on, maybe you have to move on from that guy. Maybe he gets a little bit older in the tooth. Uh, and so you have to phase out of that guy into the next guy right behind him. Uh, and you, when you have guys that are currently on the roster, Les Snead used to talk about it all the time to me, redshirting guys. There's, that happens in the NFL. They talk about it all the time. We don't want him to play <laughs> right now. We're, we're good with what we got. In that starting unit, and maybe even the first and second guy in the rotation, we're good. But we love this guy and his uh, uh, potential, and we want to. There's some things that we gotta, you know, work with him on, and 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 get him to a point. We feel like he's got uh, the necessary talent, the necessary traits, what we're looking for, the height, the weight, the skill set. Uh, now we want to mold him into a guy that sooner or later is going to be out there contributing. And it happens all the time. It's called a redshirt year, just as it is in college football. When, a, when a, a freshman comes in and, you know, sometimes guys just bogart their way in and say, I don't, I'm here to play right now. Like, I'm better than what you got. And sometimes that happens, and that's great. That's great as well. But, and, the, and they will earn their way onto the field immediately in a lot of cases. But then there's those guys that you've brought along, you've brought into your building, you've brought into your program, and you're willing to put the time in, be patient with, for the promise or the potential of future dividends. Seen it all the time. And the good teams are the ones that continually do that. I always bring up Corey Littleton. We'll see what happens with Corey Littleton this year. Uh, I don't think he forgot how to play football. I think he's in a much better system uh, to take advantage of his skill set. I think the Raiders are going to ask him uh, to do some things that he's got to show them that he can deliver. He's going to be a A, B-gap linebacker that's going to have to run fit and get his nose dirty and be a guy that's going to be able to hold up against the run. Corey Littleton, 220 pounds, who has sometimes trouble during the course of the season maintaining that weight. He can sometimes fall into that 217, 218 round. Not real conducive sometimes to being a guy that's going to have to play the run. And guess what? If Corey Littleton's on the field, teams are going to challenge Corey Littleton and see if he can hold up against the run. If he can, he's going to hold down his job and he's going to be fine because he does some really good things in pass coverage. If he can't, we'll see. You know, um, we'll see. Speaking about the linebacker uh, unit, and I wrote about uh, Tanner uh, yesterday. I think it came out yesterday, Sunday, right? Today's Monday? Uh, yeah, it, it came out came out today, actually. Um, it's weird how things work because you, you write a story and... Uh, I finished that story Sunday morning, yesterday morning, right? It goes to the internet, it goes, it gets posted ASAP. And so 
in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, it ran Sunday. Well, no, actually, it ran today in the paper because we still have a newspaper. We still pride, uh, have a lot of pride about that newspaper. But anyway, wrote a story about Tanner Muse. The guy has been working his way into the rotation, and he's a clear case. I've seen so many times people on Twitter, what a bust. What a bust he was. What a bust. He got hurt. <laughs> he had a serious toe injury that immediately in training camp, I can remember, I can like see it in my head, watching Tanner Muse this time last year going, hmm, where's the speed everybody was talking about? Where's the speed that we saw in the scout at the scouting combine in 2020? Is he thinking too much? Is he is was it was it you know a bill of goods? Was he just not that fast? Was the clock clock malfunctioning when when Tanner Muse uh, was timed in the forty? Where's that athletic ability? Oh, lo and behold, he had a serious toe injury, one that went back to Clemson. He was kind of told that Clemson eh, turf toe, whatever the case might be, you know, play through it, and he did was able to kind of get a handle on things before the scouting combine. Uh, that's when he blew it up athletically. Um, and so you ask, well, well, then what happened? I mean, if he was able to play through it in Clemson, if he was able to play through it uh, during the scout- scouting combine, why couldn't he have dealt with it in the NFL? Well, as Tanner told me, yeah, there's a big difference between planting intently and decidedly and determinedly to try to keep up with world-class athletes at the NFL level, which is day in, day out, snap in, snap out, and the intensity that it takes to keep up athletically, and not very long into that transition, because of the planting and what it takes, the physical toll it takes on your body, that injury that he was able to deal with in college, not so much in the NFL, because he was putting so much pressure on it, because you have to challenge yourself athletically even more at this level. So it came to a point where this thing really hurts and this thing is preventing me from doing what I can do. So uh, goes on the injured reserve, tries to rehab it because he wanted to get back last year, but it got to a point where the only thing that was going to work uh, was uh, was surgery. And so that's what he did. And, and man, he described... <laughs> the uh, surgery to me. I'd have to go back to my notes to look at it, uh, what exactly it was, but it didn't sound fun. All right. I'm just telling you that it's, it was gnarly what the doctors do in those situations. Uh, but at the very least, and what it did ultimately provide was relief for him. Um, you know, it didn't happen overnight. He had to work back, uh, to, to get back the strength, the speed, everything else for feel comfortable with that toe. But I remember Alec Ingle telling me, man, this dude is putting the work in, and this dude is keep an eye on him because Alec would see him day in and day out over at the facility. Those guys worked really, really hard uh, this this off season. I, I think I've told this story, um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna out Alec Ingold. I'm just gonna say who it was. Um, I had texted him uh, after OTAs just to kind of get his thoughts on things and you know share my thoughts. Uh, on things and and you know we ended it with I said to him something along the lines of all right man enjoy your break see you at training camp and it was like break there's no break you know these next 39 days we're going to work harder than we did during the last eight weeks 
And I just smiled because I'm like, I know Alec, and I've seen him work up close and personal. I spent some time with him uh, last off season and saw what he does uh, to get better. And I was like, I just it was like, okay, uh, yeah, I have no doubts that 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 he is. And he's like, there's no let up. We set a standard um, in OTAs. We're not going to deviate from that in the space between now and training camp and have to start all over in training camp, which is why when you drive by the facility in Henderson day after day after day after the OT, after OTAs, there were still a lot of cars out there. Guys were still taking advantage of getting in the weight room to the extent that they were allowed to uh, and, and, and working out and making sure that you know they weren't gonna take any kind of a step back between what they built in OTAs and the and mini camp and the off-season program when they were super diligent uh, about getting themselves right they weren't gonna put themselves in a position where they got to camp and they had to start all over which is you know um, uh, tough to do now obviously there's still a transition in those early early stages of training camp especially the heat <laughs> it's a lot hotter uh, in, uh, in, in, in late July than it was, you know, in June and, and, and May, uh, there was a time adjustment at seven 30 in the morning. You just have to, you know, there's one thing, it's one thing to be working out, uh, as much as you can and conditioning as much as you can. It's a whole other issue when you got to start training camp, uh, like that. But, uh, but because of the work that they put in, in between OTAs and training camp, they were in a much better position. Uh, to uh, to to hit the ground running in training camp and and you know a guy like Tanner Muse who Alex saw day in and day out uh, at the facility and was like saying keep an eye on this dude he's putting the work in and you're gonna see the rewards of that sooner rather than later and so you know you watch practice and Tanner Muse number 55 continually flashes he's continually getting playing time he's lining up at outside linebacker and base defense and he looks big he looks physical he looks fast um, we'll see what happens when the when the when the pads come on but he was he was he brought it at Clemson uh, he knows how to hit uh, I'll see you know uh, uh, see what 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 it's all about you know uh, come tomorrow and then and then you know when the preseason starts but people who are like oh this dude's a bust how is he a bust when he wasn't even able to physically get out there that's what I gotta sometimes scratch my head with with fans let's be a little realistic like if he went out there and bombed I'm with you but that didn't happen you're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor brought to you by Tequila and Butter. Interact with the show. Text Vinny at 69187 or tweet at him at Vinny Bonsignor. This is In the Huddle with Raiders beat writer Vinny Bonsignor on Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. He is a veteran. You know, I mean, a lot of guys got drafted ahead of him that didn't even play this year. You know, uh, this guy played 15 games, won a national title, left tackle. You know, I like Alabama guys. I get accused of that because when I turn on their film, they beat the hell out of everybody. And, you know, a lot of times they win games because they got the best players. I know their coaching staff's outstanding, but, you know, this is one of the most decorated offensive linemen to come out of college football ever. You know, he blocked for, you know, Tua. He blocked for another first-rounder the next year. All their wideouts are first-rounders, and I think Nigel Harris went in the first round. So somebody's blocking. <laughs> I mean, he's got plus eight length. You know, if you measure his width and his height, He's eight inches longer than he is tall, and that's a huge trait for the tackles that we look for. That's John Gruden, the Raiders head coach, uh, on Saturday, answering my question uh, to him about uh, Alex Leatherwood, who just, I, I, I mean it, I mean, 
dude looks like he's 28 years old, first and foremost. All right. He looks like um, a dude that's been around for a little while. All right. Physically. And also, he's got that old dude demeanor as well. Kind of that, 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 that dude that's just quietly goes about his business, rarely smiles. Uh, I know he's got a good sense of humor. I've been told that uh, about him from some people who know him. Uh, so, um, you know, obviously we all have a couple of different, you know, masks that we wear in life. And, and you know, he's got that work uh, mask and I'm sure, you know, off the field and everything like that. He's got uh, he's got he takes that one off and, and is the everyday mask. But at work and that's what we're talking about specifically, this dude, Alex Leatherwood, um, just looks like he's an eight, nine year veteran already. And he's barely a week into his first NFL uh, training camp and can't wait to see what it looks like in pads tomorrow. Uh, they're, he's going to get physically challenged by the likes of Cleve Farrell, um, by the likes of Unique Ngakwe and Max Crosby and Solomon Thomas and the veterans that the Raiders have on this defensive line. I think that's a great thing. It's going to be a great learning tool uh, for him. But there's been points in time you know, where it's gotten physical so far uh, in this first week of practice along the offense and defensive line. They've been challenging each other. They've been getting after each other. That's only going to increase tomorrow. But the intelligence um, aspect of it, he seems to have picked up everything that they're throwing at him, and it's complex uh, at this level, as you can imagine. Uh, he hasn't missed a beat in that regard. Uh, you don't hear him getting chewed out ever, <laughs> you know, on, on the field. And that's not always the case. You're going to hear some things uh, said about some players, you know, to try to get them, um, you know, uh, better in line and to do what they're supposed to do. Um, so in all of those ways, Alex Leatherwood looks like he's ready to rock and roll. Um, and I did ask Josh Jacobs, and this is interesting real quick. Um, you know, Josh Jacobs played at Alabama. He was a, a running back. I think his senior year or, or junior year before he went to the NFL uh, was when Alex was a starter as a sophomore. Alex Leatherwood gets to uh, Alabama, uh, fights his way through the maze of five and four-star recruits that, that they always have annually on that roster to earn playing time as a true freshman. As a sophomore, he's the starting guard uh, on a great Alabama team, and Josh Jacobs is the star running back of that team. Oh, by the way, that was the year Tom Cable saw was watching Alabama play and saw this kid, Alex Leatherwood, and said, wow, um, what year is this guy? A true sophomore? Got to keep my eye on on this dude. He calls uh, Lincoln Kennedy, our good friend, co-host, who will be back when the regular season starts, and Tom and and, and Lincoln are, are tight, and, and Tom says, hey, Lincoln, man, I need you to check out this dude, Alex Leatherwood, a sophomore over at Alabama. Keep track of him. Let me know what you think. Lincoln watches him early on as a sophomore and is like, this dude's pretty good. That's how long Alex Leatherwood has been literally on the Raiders' radar. They've been tracking him for a while. His draft was no, you know, a month or two month type thing. It was years in the making. Anyway, ask jo oh, by the way, uh, as they as in the weeks and months leading up to the draft, guess who the Raiders talk to quite often about young Alex Leatherwood? A guy by the name of Josh Jacobs, who was a junior running back in Alex's sophomore year. Knows him well. Saw him come in as a freshman. Saw the work ethic. Saw everything else about him. Got to know him. And so the Raiders were like, hey, um, what's your feedback on Alex Leatherwood? I'm pretty sure you can imagine 
the glowing reports that Josh Jacobs uh, gave his good friend uh, from Alabama. But here's Josh Jacobs talking when I asked him on Saturday, has Alex always been this old dude in a young man's body or what? There was always Alex, man. From the first day I met him, he always was one of them guys that he don't say too much. I mean, he might crack a couple jokes every now and then, but he just go about his business and he works. Um, and that's one of the things that kind of attracted us when we was looking into who we was going to get for that position in the draft um, to him. Just how he works. He just come in, put his head down and work. Was there any input that you had on Oh, yeah. I mean, they called me a few times. They called, <laughs> they called me a few times and asked me what was my thoughts and, like, what was my relationship with him and things like that. Um, and, man, since I met him, he's been, he's been the same guy, still the same guy. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see how he's going to do this year. I found that really interesting because uh, as Josh Jacobs was talking about, um, he said, you know, that was something that we were looking for when we were looking to fill that position. We. Did you hear that? We were looking for that. That's what we were looking for to fill that position when we were thinking about filling that position. We. So he was part of the process, and I think that's a great thing. Um, I think it's good. Look, you know, the the league is getting so much younger uh, by the day, it seems, that, you know, um, you're going to have guys that played with guys that you're about ready to draft or thinking about drafting that were teammates of them, that knew them when. You know, imagine Josh Jacobs knowing Alex Leatherwood showing up as a freshman when you're, you know, you know, at your most vulnerable, your youngest, you're uh, at the bottom rung. How are you handling yourself? Who, who are you? What are you all about? And to find, you know, to be able to have an asset like Josh Jacobs on your roster to turn to, to ask about a guy that you're thinking about drafting and being wise enough as an organization and open enough as an organization to give Josh Jacobs that kind of a voice. I think it's great um, because, to me, that's your best asset. These guys know them. And I'm going to tell you this right now. Nobody gives it up just to give it up. It just doesn't work like that. If Josh Jacobs had an issue with uh, anybody that he played with at Alabama, he's going to make sure that the team that he's with now understands that. Like, dude, stay away from this knucklehead. That happens as well. So don't just say, oh, well, of course he was going to give him a glowing report. He played with them. Yeah, well, and I'm not saying that 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 Josh played with any knuckleheads at Alabama, but if he did, I'm telling you right now, he's not going to want anything to do with them with the Raiders. That's not how he rolls. That's not how the good ones roll. Thanks to Sam Monson uh, from Pro Football Focus for joining us in the huddle today. Thank you, of course, to Sam Gordon, my good teammate, great teammate over at the Las Vegas Review Journal. I want to say thanks to Demon Cotton for holding down the fort here as our great producer, keeping us on time, making us sound good. Thanks to all the callers you brought it today. Truly appreciate that. Thanks to all the listeners. You're why we do this. And of course, thanks to Embajador Tequila for being the great sponsor that you are. You're in the huddle. Vinny Bonsignor brought to you by Tequila Embajador. Back at it tomorrow, 4 to 6 p.m. from Raiders headquarters. See you then.